Everybody, you're listening to the Drunken UX podcast. This is episode number 36. 36. One year since GDPR launched, and I am your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your co-host, Aaron Hill. Welcome. I, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this, Aaron, and we've talked about it a lot. And I think the the trick is I need to stop introducing myself as the host. I should. <laughs> I am also the co-host. I am. I am one of, one your, of your co-hosts, co-hosts. Michael Feenan. That way, it it levels that playing field, right? We're not host and co-host. It's like it's like that episode of The Office when when you have Jim and Michael, and they're both managers, and like Mike, Michael handles the big picture ideas, and Jim handles the day to day stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're listening this week, you should uh, thank our sponsors over at New Cloud. You can run by their website at newcloud.com/slash/drunkenux. Uh, that will let them know that you heard about them from us and. If make that all be worthwhile, and we would appreciate it. But they do good stuff, uh, maps and, and things Oops. and such. This is a good drink. Uh, <laughs> be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Facebook.com slash DrunkenUX. And also on Instagrams, DrunkenUX Podcast, and DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. Just come sign up and chat with us in Slack. Um, you can ask us questions. I, uh, if you're following us on Instagram, I'm actually recording this episode on the uh, microphone that I shared on there this week. I, I finally nice uh, got like, I got my Holy Grail microphone finally, which was a Shure SM7B. You chose uh, wisely. I, I have wanted one for a long time. It just randomly came up for sale locally from a, a fella and I had to snatch it up. So we'll see how this sounds. Hopefully everybody enjoys it. If it sounds like garbage when I get it out of the mix, then I guess you'll just have to suffer me for an episode until I switch back, but I like it. So I'm departing a little bit from my normal drink this evening. I, 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 I I like bourbon, but I'm picky. I'm still like, you know, finding the bourbons I like, and I I don't like Jack Daniels. I don't like Jack Daniels. Uh, But I have a bottle of Gentleman Jack. Uh, because it came highly recommended to me, and I must say, it is quite excellent. It's not super like interesting mm-hmm. necessarily. Like it's it's uh what does the the band here say? It says it is double mellowed, and I feel like that is probably a relatively accurate way of describing this. Like it's just sort of kick back, relax. Hmm. You know, it's not super fancy, it's not super crazy, but you can definitely enjoy a glass. They play Grateful Dead. In the distillery. Well, it was distilling. I feel like that probably is not part of their culture, but sure. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, what? Yes, drink. You have a drink. What do you? I drink? do. I have. Um, it's a. It's an experiment, and it's actually not bad. Um, I took some eighteen hundred tequila, coconut flavored, and I mixed it with some Bailey's. And I know that sounds like a weird drink combination, but it's it's actually not bad. Um, did, did it curdle when you mixed it, it together? It didn't, surprisingly. Uh, the, the coconut flavor in this 1800 is pretty strong. So it, um, you know, coconut has kind of like, it has the same kind of like shape sort of as like vanilla. Like it's like big open flavor and, and the uh, it went well with the the Irish cream. So 
Isn't it's that not bad. What a, a cement mixer is isn't a cement mixer tequila and and Irish oh, cream. Is it? I thought that curdled though. Yeah, that's why I was asking. Maybe yeah. it's vodka. I don't know. Oh no, this didn't curdle. I mean, it's it's there's no like particulate matter in it at all. Hmm. Fair enough. Uh, hey, if you like it, that's all that really matters. Yeah, I would drink it again. You were telling me uh, earlier today about this chat. (laughs) I I say chat software, quote unquote. It's not. Okay, so it it circled. It it went through the Twitters, and then someone on my work Slack posted it, and I was like, "Oh, I know that guy." So it's this guy, um, Kevin, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he actually worked on uh, my diaper base project at Ruby by the Bay last month and um he's a very cool dude very good developer and he made this thing and it's a css only well html and css only chat tool it's like bi-directional communication using just css and it uses stuff that we kind of talked about before with the background image kind of hacking its way like smuggling data exfiltrating it through background image um and <laughs> You have here in in the show notes Ian Malcolm and on on the GitHub repo he actually has that exact Ian Malcolm gif. Yeah, I but... made the joke earlier when we were talking about it, and then I went and looked at his readme, and I'm like, oh, he already beat me to that joke. <laughs> the, the, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. Yeah, because uh, I've I've made this argument before with some of this stuff. That's you know, it's sort of the the proof of concept CSS sort of things like the mm. the one thing i always remember is the guy that made homer simpson mm-hmm. in only css okay uh, and like it it looked good it looked correct uh, and but it was you know this huge thing of like divs mm-hmm. and crazy css it's like you would never make an image that way that is not a thing you would do right right and i used to always think about it in those terms and I've kind of, as I've gotten older I've, and, and more mature about it, it's become one of those things that I, I realize that it's an exercise. It's not mm-hmm. about the the result. It's about how you got there and the well, practice it takes to do that. Do you know the, this is, is, isn't in our show notes, but it's kind of related. Do you know the story about the, um, uh, the inverse square calculation they did in the Quake game? Do you remember that? Man, I haven't had a math class since college. <laughs> okay, it's so like if you're calculating distance, right? There there you have to do some you have to do some square root calculations to calculate distance. But uh I I want to say it was John Carmack, but um might have been might have been one of the other devs, but one of the devs on the Quake team figured out that you could approximate a square root by using the bit shift operator. And of so course. And so the bit shift operator is an x86 instruction, so it's super fast, and it's it's close enough of an approximation that it gets you a good answer. Hmm. So it it allowed really complicated distance calculations to be done in a lot of different places very quickly, which made the game awesome. I mean, a lot of things made the game awesome, but that added to the awesomeness. Yeah. So, but I mean, I'm sure that started as like, oh, check this out. Look, if you do this, you can basically do the distance calculation. That's weird. Yeah. The the thing that just came up the other day that I that this made me think of, and and this application of these ideas is uh 
so this guy Rich Harris, he's mm-hmm. from the New York Times. He's on their investigations team, and they they have this article on uh, Trump's taxes. All the politics aside, mm-hmm. if you're into web development, we'll have a link to this in the show notes. Go look at the article. Scroll down about a third of the way. Mm-hmm. There's a bar graph. Yeah, this this is a bar graph with a it's the bars are aligned along along an x-axis, but they go down. Yeah, and what they did was they built this bar graph with the story text flowing around the bars to really the explanation was that it was to really kind of accentuate the because the scale is towards the end it gets pretty big yeah yeah it's it's a case of where the bar graph itself like at one end it's you know it's pretty shallow and mm -hmm. then you start getting really really long and it would take up a ton of vertical space yeah and you'd have a lot of white space then on the left hand side so they came up with this idea using a, a bar graph. Now, the bar graph is done with, like, SVGs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can go into that if you want to. But what they figured out was by using a little bit of CSS overflow, which mm-hmm. isn't a big deal, but using then before pseudo selectors and a, uh, a fancy uh, shape outside uh, setting, <laughs> they basically made a clipping path Along the overflowed section of the chart to make it look like, and this is really exactly what you were just saying, Aaron. Yeah. It's not flowing around the bar graph. Right. It's flowing around the clip path they created. Right. Which just happens to approximate the shape of the bar graph line close enough that it looks correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it, it isn't the exact. It probably is, you know, it's not the way it would look if it was a perfect kind of flow. But yeah, it's certainly the kind of uh, outcome that you would want from that. And it's that kind of like it's a super creative solution to making that text flow in a way that isn't just, you know, cut off or, or floated. Back in the mid 2000s, we did um, a similar trick called. Uh, div sandbags and i don't have the link because i don't think the blog is up anymore but i I guess i could look but it was essentially you had like an image that had maybe um it was right aligned and then the left side of the image had kind of a curvy profile and so you would stack uh divs that were floated towards the side that the image was on and just of varying widths and they would all be like you know float right clear right and right. so it would just be like a series of, of boxes of varying widths. And then the text would, you know, flow around those. And um, it, it was, it was kind of cool. Like it, it gave it a neat, like visual appeal uh, that was non, non-linear. You, you were basically creating a really low resolution outline. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. The edges. So Not nearly as cool as this. <laughs> the, the chat thing reminds me a lot too of that, the, old malicious css story remember yeah right how people were using figured out you could use css to track people right because of you know using the background images and things like that that you could create behavior uh, yes. triggers basically and that's because that's kind of what the css chat is doing it's yeah. exploiting the same kind of technique just not maliciously but that is how the if you go in and, and read uh the the GitHub that we'll have linked, he's got in the readme like kind of how it works, and we sat here yeah. ourselves and and mulled over because I kept reading it and I, I kept saying over and over, that doesn't work that way, 
Yeah. Uh, but it does because it's really almost novel the way they accomplished it by leaving the page in a loading state. Right. And because I was like, oh, I see how they're receiving data. I get that <laughs> now. But I'm like, you can't send it. CSS doesn't send data. But right. It does. With and get they requests. Use, yeah. They use a server sitting in the middle of that to translate these get requests and yeah. feed it to both pages that are receiving data. It's real wild, quite frankly. There was there was a I think we mentioned this before, maybe on the last time we talked about this stuff. There was a thing where um someone would take like an animated jif and they would um they would send it down to the user but then it would be sent without the terminating bytes in the jif so like and they would use that as an open channel to send down data and it was basically like creating an open socket connection with the browser using this image tag one of these days somebody is going to message us and be like you guys are idiots your co-host constantly <laughs> says Jife. So now I, I want to design a shirt for us that's just like J-Y-F-E across the front <laughs> of it. I always spell it, whenever I like, spell it on Twitter, I always spell it Z-H-A-I-F. Uh, like rhymes with wife. Jife for life. <laughs> so if you're interested in all of this stuff, the CSS hover, how data is getting passed back and forth and all this, um, there was uh, one other guy that you found, Aaron. That oh yeah, it was. I mean, his name yeah. is just Davy on Twitter. Yeah, Davy WTF. He was he was linked. It, it was the, the Kevin on the GitHub. Kevin says that this is the person that inspired the idea, and he basically did essentially the same thing, but tracking your mouse position by seeing what you're hovering over, and then just having a big grid of divs on the page, and then when you hover over an image, it's, it makes a call to a background image that makes a get request with the coordinates. Yeah, it it when you see, because he's got a video of this in action, mm -hmm. and that was where the light bulb went off for me for yeah. how, the, how the chat was accomplishing it. Right, um, right. Seeing it done, like, unidirectionally then made yeah. it make sense bidirectionally, so... Go go check that out. It's it's cool. It's absolutely not usable. Like you would never <laughs> in your life build a chat system this way. It is purely proof of concept, but uh it's I could see it's like a new experiment. Maybe other data being transferred this way. I, I don't know. Like I, I think that if this does have an application, it's gonna be something kind of maybe oddball. Or dangerous. Hacky. Or dangerous. Yeah. Probably I mean probably dangerous. That I mean that's why we say like all of this reminded me of the malicious yeah. tracking stuff and that's i, I don't like that um, <laughs> it's still cool cool stuff though thank you kevin <laughs> i want to get into our main topic first by doing one of these standard boilerplate disclaimers that i am not a lawyer aaron um is definitely not a lawyer my god uh put a shirt on once in a while man <laughs> um we we are not giving you legal advice um the, the bar exam that we take is not not the, not the barrister exam. <laughs> I, I, that's clever. I like that. Thank you for that. Um, but we are going to be talking about GDPR tonight. Um, it is the one-year anniversary of the launch of GDPR on May 25th. Um, and so we wanted to take this time. Uh, we had episode 11 was when this first came up. That was on, right. I think it was May 28th of last year. So GDPR had just launched. And so we were like, hey, here's a bunch of stuff so you can get started. Um, and now is uh, one year later. And so I thought it would be neat to sit down and kind of 
look at some of what's uh, come out since then, mm-hmm. where we are, and where you should be as a developer. So I and I will apologize in advance because this will be more of a policy show, for lack of a better term. Uh, but if you want to jump in the later in the show and just get the, the no, developer should, bits, but you should listen to the whole. thing. You should listen to the whole thing. I think, yeah, there I, will be. I definitely agree. <laughs> Michael will sh- surely make some funny jokes in the first half. <laughs> <Funny> <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that opportunity. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> so th- there's a quote in a CNBC article I came across, which is kind of what said, "Oh yeah, we need to talk about this because it's it's funny." It said, among some consumers, GDPR is perhaps best known as the bothersome series of rapid-fire <laughs> pop-up privacy notices. Those astronomical fines have failed to materialize. The law has created new bureaucracies within corporations, and with those, tension and confusion. And it's unclear if the EU data authority that oversees the law is adequately staffed to handle its demands. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, it, th- <laughs> this thing is just like Mike Tyson coming into the ring to yeah. give the middle finger to GDPR. It's like, this thing sucks for everybody. It's, as, it's like it's like if the IRS didn't exist before, and then suddenly it does, and it has like three people working. And they're like, all right, everybody send us money. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, uh, and that has been a big part of the problem. And we'll get into this a little bit more here in a little bit, that uh, staffing is a problem quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in part because you're trying to staff up not just at the companies, but within the government organizations for something that didn't exist before 2016. Mm-hmm. And so corporations are going to lawyers and asking, how do we comply with this? Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of lawyers that know it well. Uh, and the lawyers that just read it and try to interpret it are don't understand. Yeah. They don't have somebody to go to to ask questions because most of the places are already, you know, uh, getting buried by actual work related to this. Right. So it, it has created a big problem. So there's this article from the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Say that three times fast because Popsicle. I sure as hell can't. People and popsicles. They They put out an article looking at one year of this. And one of the things that they noted is that a lot of the problems and and challenges folks have faced with gdpr have been very logistical in nature not technical not like on the development side it's it's problems with like who needs to know what collect what and have access to what logistical on the side of the people serving content or logistical on the side of um like the consumer uh yes okay Okay. A, a lot of these issues do very much cross apply as far as uh you know where the where the problems lie and it makes for an interesting tug of war over whose needs went out now folks in the eu and in the gdpr offices would tell you that the consumer always wins out in these uh in these arguments because man there was a, there was a good quote on this in, in one of the articles in the show notes but i couldn't tell you which one but um it's this idea that businesses don't exist to process data mm. they they process data to do business okay okay it's 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 sort of like that but it's this yeah. idea that uh, businesses need to come to this realization that 
they can't just hoard all this data on the hopes that they may need it later kind of thing is what right. he's driving at. Right. Um, even though a lot of businesses do work in that mentality. And sometimes they don't even realize they're doing that, you know. Sometimes they're collecting data just because they think it's reasonable. Well, you know, I, I remember when when uh when I was at Cornell and we um we first rolled out Google Analytics, no one we didn't have anyone to use it. Like no one was asking for it or anything, but it was just like we might as well collect this data. And I think it was like two or three years before anyone asked for it. Yeah. So well and so a a, a corollary question to this that is getting raised at a lot of places is how do you adapt not the technology but the business processes? Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of organizations, and um, even uh, with our company where I work, uh, one of the big challenges has been this idea of getting everybody to understand that we can't just collect all the information we want because we want it, and we can't keep it if we're not using it. Those go against GDPR, and right. as a as a consequence. It's leaving especially marketers because mm-hmm. marketers, at least U.S.-based marketers, aren't thinking about this a lot. Right. The people who are thinking about it are the legal offices, the HR offices, and the web developers. And you're left with these groups constantly, you know, sort of talking to each other occasionally and trying to patchwork these solutions together. But more often than not, trying to explain why they can't do something or how to, you know, change the way they're doing something, even though the business doesn't want to. Right. So like, is it, I mean, is it doing things that are helping consumer? Like, is it doing the thing it's meant out to be, even though it's implementation is maybe not perfect? I mean, like our, what kind of, what kind of complaints are coming in? Well, so, so far, like from a website standpoint, if you go over to Lexology, They've got an article that kind of breaks down some of this. And one of the things they noted was that a majority of the complaints are not mm. aimed at websites. Huh. They noted, like, they're, the complaints that are coming to data protection authorities were things like complaints about telemarketing, complaints about getting promotional emails that they didn't request. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, and this is something that's maybe a little more specific to the EU than the U.S., but uh, requests to be to have, like, uh, surveillance and CCTV data. Erased. Oh, huh. Because that applies. Like right. GDPR is not just based on websites. It's based it's on data privacy. It's Yeah, it's data. Fascinating. And data covers a huge umbrella of information. And so a lot of those requests have been coming into that. One of the problems that like businesses have found as a consequence is that like they're supposed to have a data protection officer so that when data protection authorities come to them, there is this person responsible for executing on these requests. Okay. Okay. This is hard because you have you inherently have to hire somebody who might be working against the business interests of your company. <laughs> because this is the person, they are there to be an advocate for the consumer, not for the business. They can, you can outsource it. A, a business yeah. can hire out the the role of a data protection officer to a service certainly Um, but a lot of companies want that in-house because that person may have to deal with you know proprietary information or you know this Mm -hmm. that or the other that's a challenge because let's say you know marketing is sitting on a database of you know 10 million records that they've collected over the last 20 years yeah 
it's the DPO's job to go in there, look at that, and say, uh, we need to delete every record over, like, five years old. Yeah. Because huh. we can't retain data indefinitely if we aren't using it. Now, let, let me be clear, you know, let's presume that that's just a database of stuff they've collected they aren't using. But sure. Because we're digital hoarders, you know, we yeah. there isn't really a cost or hasn't up until now been a cost to just keeping data in case. Yeah. Uh, interesting side effect of that is uh, there was an article. I'll see if I can find it because I hadn't thought about it before this. But there was an article about um, AI training. Huh. Because AI inherently needs – it was something because it was, it was an article dealing with like Alexa and, and Google Home and – the way yeah. I, just, I just said Alexa and it came on. Sorry, Alexa. Don't don't mind me. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> hey, it turned off. Uh, <laughs> cool. Alexa. <laughs> it, uh, but they use like all the voice recordings that they save up to okay. be continuously training the voice models. And of course, this freaks, right. freaks people out. They hate the idea that their voices are being kept and all of this stuff. I personally have my own feelings. Not important. But the... There is a valid thing there to say, yeah, but we need large data sets of historical information to train against. Well, that, w that was what Google Voice was, wasn't it? When you signed up for Google Voice, there's a, a privacy thing in there that I'm sure no one read where they were using Google Voice data because, you know, you get your voicemails and then yeah, they you're supposed to like – yeah, and you're supposed to tell it like, oh, oh, this word was wrong, and then you correct it, and then that helps train their AI to better understand the voice. And then now they have, then they turn that into Google Translate, and then now they do all kinds of crazy stuff with yeah. calling robots. And and so there's this very real sort of thinking in the business world that, well, we may need that later, but mm -hmm. most data doesn't fall into that. Like. Those are, I think, very specific cases a lot of time. And in many of those, you can anonymize it and do other things that mm -hmm. would allow, you know, strip it of its personally identifiable, you know, information. If you just need, like, an archive of images, you know, you could have that blur out the faces or whatever, but still use it to do, like, road recognition or things like that. Right. So there's also this confusion that I mentioned between like the technical and the legal and the business responsibilities. And that the DPO is that person who sort of needs to be able to speak all of those languages to pull those people together. Okay. Because they're, we just the talked about this recently. That, that's like kind of like having an accessibility person. Yeah. Right? A little or, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they have to have a foot in several of those worlds because if, you know, if somebody puts in a, GDPR request like they they want to have their stuff deleted and the technical people haven't built the stuff and the business can't respond within 30 days and yeah. then legal gets a letter that says you have not complied you know the the DPO is the person who kind of gets on the hook for whether or not those three parts of the wheel are working together so let's talk about enforcement of this, because that's really where we get into, like, the boondoggle of all of this. Right. Let's, because one, one of the things you haven't heard a lot of, right, are things about fines. Yeah. Where are all the fines at? Because you were asking, is it effective? Has it done what it was set out to do? On mm -hmm. one hand, the answer is yes. Um, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, about, like, uh, the mandatory reporting component of it. Mandatory yeah. reporting has worked extremely well. 
but the fining aspect of it, the, the part that is meant to make companies be more considerate of user privacy hasn't really worked. One of those reasons is that there are uh, five different EU nations that still haven't ratified it. <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, Bulgaria, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Greece, Portugal, and Slovenia. Slovenia. Okay. None of them have ratified GDPR yet. So there's a giant space of gray. What's the what's the consequence of that? Like if they don't ratify it. Oh man, I couldn't. That that's getting into EU politics that I don't okay. even have the slightest idea. I I wonder if they have like a time limit or else they have like sanctions from the my, EU or something. My guess is it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, no, I you laugh, but it, thinking about it like if somebody, you know, if if there was a proposed amendment to the constitution in the US and two-thirds of the states ratify it, it doesn't yeah. matter if the other third do or don't ratify it. Right. It's still going to become the law. And so right. I think okay. that's kind of the case here is whether or not they individually ratify it is probably irrelevant to the fact that they're they're going to be required to still meet it. Okay. And then if they don't, it becomes an internal EU affair. Like that has nothing to do with uh the the data side. Mm -hmm. The so far uh fines have been in the area of 58 to 60 million dollars US. Wow. Damn. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? I mean, it does, but I see that that is for what Google was assigned, <laughs> which Google, is Google got fifty-seven million of that. Yeah. So Google one fine to Google was like ninety percent of the total fines in two thousand and eighteen. Hold on, humans suck at big numbers. I'm looking up. Uh, it's point zero four percent of their revenue. Thank you. I I remember that number. Yeah, Facebook got fined. Uh, folks probably have heard about that. A whopping six hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. So, uh, by by comparison, um, wait, you said point zero four percent, point zero four. Yeah, it's it's nothing. So that'd be if you earned uh, a median the median income of fifty thousand dollars, that'd be getting fined twenty dollars. Right. So you got like a parking ticket, basically. It's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, granted. I, and this was this had to do with I think AdSense or AdWords, uh, one of yeah. those, um, and how they were processing data and not getting mm -hmm. consent or something. Is there something there? And that uh, that becomes problematic. There's a a quote from uh, Odia Kagan, the chair of the GDPR compliance program uh, for Fox Rothschild, and she said. I still feel like unless there is a very significant increase in staffing, they're probably going to have to pick and choose the enforcement actions that they bring. Hmm. That is a terrible way to apply law. <laughs> like that is the worst way to apply law. And that's, I think where, like I see these fines and while, you know, it's, it's only a handful. I think, you know, I, I think it's less than a dozen fines in total have been levied. Yeah. Most of it at Google, Facebook, another small one. Uber got one, I remember. It's interesting that, that Facebook's fine is so much smaller than Google's, given that Facebook is still a huge revenue generator and all the stuff in... Well, yeah. I don't, I don't remember what the nature of Facebook's fine was uh, because all there's mitigating factors that come into play. Was it intentional? Was it ongoing? Was right. it one time? 
you know, this... but with all the stuff in the news recently about Facebook's data collection stuff, you know, like I'm, I'm surprised that Facebook wasn't closer to Google's. There's still, you know, half the cases that have been filed, like half of them are still open. Because mm -hmm. huh. again, and just back to this quote, that there is a staffing problem. What we were saying earlier, yeah. that the nations right. themselves are still working to try to figure out how to get enough people into these bureaucracies to handle the volume of stuff that's coming in. And it's a volume that is only going to increase over time. Uh, and right. that's, that's a huge problem because it creates inconsistency and sends no clear messages to companies with respect to how to apply this law to their processes. Mm -hmm. And more to the point, it becomes a huge problem because it, like the way it's being applied now it's getting thrown at the big companies and none of the small ones, basically. Yeah. Oh, I remember. And the Facebook one had something to do with Cambridge Analytica, by the way. Uh, okay. I do remember that. Oh, now. right. It, it was like an ancillary uh, component of that. Huh. We've seen some of the reverse of that in the U.S. when it comes to like copyright and patent trolling. Right. A lot of that gets aimed at the small companies. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're going after the, the little, you know, bite-sized chunks trying to get settlements and they cast a wide net well because that's about revenue generation and gdpr is about well ostensibly about consumer protection right because yeah. here's the thing keep in mind the at least my understanding is the fines under gdpr they don't go to the person making the complaint right that's just money the government is collecting <laughs> right so and i'm that's one of those i'm going to reserve the right to be wrong on that but <laughs> you know it's that as far as like uh people cashing in that's just not a thing yeah. so the incentive is actually reversed there they want to get the big settlements and smack down these giant corporations that are kind of mm -hmm. flaunting the law there's nothing to be gained by the work that would have to go in to policing all the small ones right that's a problem as you know in my <laughs> eyes because it's it's creating two sets of standards where there isn't now there is an article over at align.com that, and this is actually, it's, I'm going to share their article, but it's mentioned in a lot of them, that pretty much everybody does think that stronger enforcement is on the way. Yeah. Um, everybody's kind of referred to this. Um, when France issued their fine against Google, they mentioned, like, this is a transition year. This is yeah. year one of GDPR. We're all figuring it out. We're all getting our processes and people and steps together. So... They're all looking towards the next two to five years of really figuring this out. And once you do, that's where they are going to see stronger enforcement. And we don't know what that looks like yet. Here's a question. So let's imagine the GDPR was applied uh, 30, 30 years ago. Would, would all these companies and countries be in compliance then? I know that like internet didn't exist in the way that it does now then. I just mean like the data that companies were collecting, would it be easier or similar or more difficult back then to comply with it? Back then, if you're talking about like literally back then and not like today, sure, like, but 30 or like not, not saying like, let's jump ahead to, you know, 2050 and look back. No, I, I mean like literally before we had, because we have so much big data now. So imagine it's like in the 80s or maybe the late 70s when almost everything was paper-based or maybe mainframe-based in some cases. Well, yeah, because that, that goes back to this when I said 
you know, digital hoarding doesn't have a cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, for lack of right. a better term, it does. I mean, I know realistically there is a, but it's a, negligible. Yeah. Yeah. So is this, is this, is this a problem that has come because of the big data and data collection, data hoarding? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So like, because there's, this up is, until now there's just never been a consequence. Right. You know, think about, I, I think about in the U S every time target, announced a data breach you know mm -hmm. think about all of these companies that have had you know adobe linkedin all of these companies that yeah. have had user data uh leaked out and stolen and what have the consequences of that ever been <laughs> not much <laughs> right i i know yeah. there have been a couple cases that where fines have happened let's go let's go to the big one uh that was recent equifax right that one there there was uh well, they they had the thing where they could, you could sign up for free credit reporting, right. but but remember, I think we covered this on the podcast before. Someone made a fake Equifax site, yeah, and collect to collect data. And they didn't even know. <laughs> they were one of the companies that also have been fined under the GDPR. Not a lot, huh? But they have. Yeah. They were one of the few that have gotten fines uh, in the last year. But you know that that too though the cost to them was effectively. Yeah you know, 50 bucks worth of credit monitoring the people. Yeah. And, you know, if, we're not, if they, if they opt in. Yeah. If they opted into it and yeah. then it's, you know, it was that classic, uh, joke of, I don't want to give Equifax more of my data to get to do that <laughs> now. I, why would I trust them to do that now? That's ridiculous. Well, so the reason I ask that question though, is, is it sounds, it sounds like, the problem is that we've been undisciplined with our data collection practices oh, because totally. if this if this problem wouldn't have existed in the way that it does now back in the 80s like if if these laws were applied back then uh then it, it seems like maybe we've just been kind of drunk on what's possible like the Ian Malcolm thing from earlier yeah you know like we never would think if we should be collecting this just if we could and it also comes back to this idea, and this is going to come up at the end of the show, about having to retroactively apply fixes now is a huge yeah. problem. Most of these systems were not built from the ground up to comply with things like, you know, right to be forgotten, right, right. right to uh, data transportation, all these things. Mm -hmm. Because they weren't built to support it, trying to retroactively go back and build this stuff on is just like to go back to the other uh, comment you made accessibility it's yeah. so hard to retrofit these things onto these giant data silos and, and companies that have had think about a big organiz organization like google or microsoft or facebook and yeah it's not like your information is in one table in one system right. like it's scattered across Look, hundreds of systems <laughs> Yeah. And how to unify that? Like, they, you know, have internal things that unify it into your Facebook page or whatever. But to be able to go in and delete that, you know, from other people's mentions and things, because keep yeah. in mind, your right to be forgotten is absolute across their system, not just your account. Right. It's a, it'd be completely non exist. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, I was just thinking, like, if, you know, if we had GDPR here. And someone filed a complaint against a company soon. So, if that happened, how do you know if they're if you're compliant? 
Like, how do they know if you're compliant? I mean, you can, you can erase the superficial stuff. That's actually not that hard, but like you're required to scrub logs and caches and backups. And I mean, everything. This is a great segue into our next section, which is the catch 22 of GDPR. Imagine that. (laughs) It's like I planned it or something. So here's the thing (laughs) about all of that. Let's talk about the people side because GDPR at its heart and soul is about us or right. more accurately our EU specifically you and you and I yes yeah you and me or we we Just, actually wrote the law so blame us yeah it only applies to us people are inherently untrustworthy of corporations and the way they handle our data I can't imagine why. yet we we absolutely fork it over to them <laughs> right <laughs> even though and I'm gonna say something that may be unpopular by and large, I think corporations are relatively trustworthy. I I am to not point. I am not a firm believer that things like, you know, data retention policies and stuff would significantly reduce the risks of uh data leaks and mm-hmm. breaches and things. Like it, yes, it would mitigate some of it, but I don't think it would mitigate much of it. I, I was just I was just thinking how you were saying how we readily fork over our data to the to these companies and do you remember um before social media existed you could get those um toolbars for your browser oh god yeah and and sometimes they wouldn't be malware uh, like you know or like you could get the um they sent me a check every month man shut up <laughs> remember like they had the thing where you could get like the animated smiley faces for Yahoo Messenger or whatever. But by loading that plugin in, it was also tracking your data. I, I still remember the name. <laughs> I used a, a tool called All Advantage. Huh. It was the name of the one I had. And yeah, you and I did the thing where you got the tool that moved your mouse around the screen randomly so that it would track your usage of the computer even when you weren't there. Because <laughs> they were you know, they paid you a dime an hour or whatever for uh, letting you run it. I was a kid. I didn't care. I was yeah. getting a check every month. I got like 30 bucks a month out of that. <laughs> nice. God knows well what done. they collected on me during that period. <laughs> that was the 90s. I don't even know what there was useful to get out of that at that point. God, $30 in the 90s. That's like $100,000 today. As a kid? That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know. They just sent me a check. They didn't care how it's old like, I was. Like two CDs. Anyways. Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, long story short, I mean, I know there's the whole argument about, yeah, our company's really trustworthy, whatever. The reality is, you know, I don't care if they market to me. I don't care if they know when I poop. I don't care if they know what my house temperature is set to. That's not useful data to me, and frankly, I don't really see the point in being protective of it. And by and large, I don't feel like I've ever had that abused by a company. Sure, I've had gotten like a mailer when i've looked at something on a website and then something came in the mail and it's like i don't know how you even got my address <laughs> but it's not like they're a criminal you see the thing that i'm worried about though is as we sort of saw this a little bit with the, the data from was it ancestry or what one of the like you spit in a tube and send it off and they tell you like yeah where your people are from that was, i think it was 23 and me is the thing you're thinking of okay so there was a thing where they were potentially sharing your information with third parties. Right. And and I like I, I did do twenty three and me before and I, I immediately went on and I was like, opt out of everything, please. I don't want to be part of that. 
and I'm just trusting them that they will honor that. But it's the thing that I'd be concerned about is like, so, you know, Google's wiretap may know what your home temperature is and they may know, they may hear you talking and they may know how often you have a dog in the room, you know, or those sorts of things. And like on their own, like those individual items aren't particularly like juicy or anything. But then like, as this rolls out more to more places and the internet of things starts collecting data from everywhere, and then they start sharing data across each other, you can then draw connections about people. And, and I, I can't even fathom the ways it could be used uh, against you, but I'm just imagining anything where there's like risk mitigation or risk minimization for against the consumer, that's where it's going to be exploited. And for example, with 23andMe sharing your genetic data with an insurance company and how that might affect your life insurance or health insurance premiums. Sure. So something like that, but like looking at, oh, how often does he keep his, you know, house warm? And then if it's like frequently low, then they're going to infer that you probably aren't home very often or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, Cause it, it does come down to uh, a lot of different factors. And, and to your question about like, you know, the people side of this, Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is actually that it's good to put the user in control of this stuff, but that doesn't mean they get it. Yeah. And one of the uh, the things that has come up, and you'll hear this again later, is privacy blindness. And we've been hit with so many of the emails because of the launch yeah. of GDPR. We've been hit with so many of the pop-ups. We've been hit with so many of the consent checkboxes that – you're not paying any more attention to what consent you're giving most of the time than you <laughs> right. do when you hit the accept button on terms of service. Right. The EULA. They, yeah. They, <laughs> n- nobody is paying attention. And even <laughs> if they were, I would reckon that most people wouldn't know the actual details of the things they are and aren't giving authorization to, especially mm-hmm. at a, a company where they may have. 10, 12, 15 different consents that they ask you for. Right. This makes it incredibly hard to build a solution that is right for those users. There's an article over at Payment Source um, that broke down a couple different uh, surveys that were sent out to e-corporations. Mm-hmm. And one, they said that 20% of the companies thought they were compliant, and another mm-hmm. 50% had started work on it. You you know what would be really cool that this would this wouldn't solve all of the GDPR problems, but it would maybe address the the website ones. You you have an Android phone, right? Yeah. You know when you install a new app and then the app says this device would like these permissions, and then you have to like agree mm-hmm. to each of the things. And so I'm pretty sure that what happens there is that when a device includes the library that accesses your camera or your photos or your contacts or anything then it triggers that on the install. The install says, oh, this device is using these, these libraries, so we need to affirm that you're okay with that. What if something like that was present on on the web browser where, I guess it wouldn't really matter for data collection, but but I mean, if, they're, if you're consenting to have things um, tracked when you interact with the website, if if a website had to, for the JavaScript use or whatever, if they had to say like, we want to use these features in the DOM or what have you, then um, the web, the website would then intelligently know these are the things that I'm asking. I may ask you about 
And then the people would just have an easy form that says like, yes, yes, no, whatever. I I hate the way it sounds. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not even gonna try to sugarcoat it. It sounds terrible. That sounds like an internet I don't want to use. But they're already doing that. I know. Like they just have they just have it in like fine print. The little notification pop ups. Can I use your location? Mm-hmm. Do you want to get uh, notifications from us? I hate all of them. They're annoying. Yeah. I don't because if I'm going to your website to read an article on how to build something or what happened in in Alabama yesterday or whatever, that information doesn't mm-hmm. impact your ability to complete the thing I need to do. Right. Well, what what if it was just something like in the browser Chrome itself, and, and not the Chrome browser, but the browser like frame, yeah. where it had a series of different icons. Maybe like one was like a location service, one was like I don't know, contact or email or whatever, and and it would just it only show the symbols that were possibly being used by the or wanting to be used by the page, and then you would have to like opt into any of them. You're okay sharing, like some like on. On weather.com, I don't mind sharing my location because it helps right. my experience. But on a site like uh, like if I was buying clothes or something, you don't need to know my location. <laughs> that, the, the thing is, I don't think that that is the crux of the problem. Because what, no. the, the thing is, the, the, the whole consent issue deals with the things each individual company is doing. And every company is doing different, you know, different mm-hmm. things. The, the other study yeah. that was in this payment source article said that 20% of companies don't think compliance is even possible. Yeah. Because, like, with what you're describing, yeah, I mean, that's all well and good for, like, services. Yeah. But we're not necessarily – I mean, services certainly are included in that, but it's definitely not the the deep end of the pool where everybody is is swimming at. I guess I'm trying to think about in terms of communicating to consumers, you know, the the problem with fine print is that it says a lot of very important things in a very hard to consume and hard to read way. And they present it at a point when it's preventing you from getting the thing you want. Like you mentioned earlier, there has to be a way to kind of distill that down to like general terms that are fair and reasonable to the consumer that also are easy to understand, you know, like, like for example, like location tracking or, you know, uh, this site is going to collect your, your name. Are you okay with that? Yeah. There, or I, I don't, I don't even know all the things that they have there, to. There's a name for this and I'm going to save <laughs> it um, because I've got it here uh, towards the end. So I'm going to, I want to, let me get into one more stat and then okay. we can talk about that. The other stat comes from Tech Radar real fast. That is, uh, they were looked. They asked a bunch of corporations, or not? They didn't ask a corpor- bunch of corporations. They uh, were reporting on a study done, and mm-hmm. uh, a guy went out and put out GDPR requests to a bunch of companies, and then measured the outcomes. And what he found was that only seventeen percent of his requests were in compliance with the requirements wow. of GDPR, with nine percent of them coming that came back on top of that delayed or incomplete wow so an a an incredibly small 20 26% you know yeah. met the request but to what you were saying earlier and to the idea of the catch 22 how as a user do you even know yeah like if they tell you like oh yeah like 
you're completely gone for our databases. And like, like, how do you, yeah. how do you know? <laughs> there, there is a, a, a measure of trust that has to happen there. And there's a, mm-hmm. a gap in coverage that I don't know how to cover. And I don't know. I maybe, and maybe it doesn't need to be, maybe there's no value in trying to solve that particular problem. Cause the thing is, if they say, oh yeah, we scrubbed you from our system. And then next week you get an email from them, then right. you, you have immediate and instant information that, they didn't scrub you from their system or or worse if if they said that they scrubbed you from their system but then they have a data breach maybe let's say a year later oh yeah so like if you if you wrote to equifax and you said uh per gdpr i'd like you to remove like make me not exist as far as you're concerned and then the year later they got hacked and there's a data breach the scarlet letter version of this is the ashley madison hack from what three years ago Oh yeah, um, that's oh man. That would be a good example of that. Like, it, it, obviously, this wasn't in effect then, but if something like that were to occur with a site like that, especially, um, so the end of the show is this big section called "Why Do I Care as a Developer?" And if you part two, you've you've heard, yeah, you part two because you've heard us talk about some of this, and some of this will be repeated, but it's because it's still important, and I think people still need to hear it. Step number one. I do not care if you are a developer based in the U.S. The GDPR still affects you, and stop pretending like it doesn't. It is dangerous to take that mentality. I'll tell you, and Aaron, I don't know if you are in any like Ruby subreddits or not, but I kick around some of the WordPress uh, mm-hmm. subreddits and things like that, and watching conversations about GDPR makes me want to cry the way (laughs) people talk about it outside the eu because it's dangerous i I don't really use reddit i haven't used reddit in like a few years because i just i got tired of using if dunning kruger was a website um because that was most of my experience (laughs) it sounds like that hasn't changed it's tough because (laughs) people are anchored to this idea of well it's it's you know if it's in the eu why i don't have to care yeah you do because a you may work for a company someday that does business in the eu and now you got to care about it but more importantly Mm -hmm. this idea that oh the eu laws don't apply to the u.s is extremely bad advice to give somebody because that's not the way law works the u.s has things called trade agreements and with those trade agreements comes a uh, a reciprocity component for certain mm-hmm. laws, especially as they apply to anything related to things like intellectual property, trademark, and data privacy. Now, yeah. as far as I know, this has not been tried in the U.S. yet. Right. There hasn't been a fine levied against a purely U.S. company. Facebook, Google, Uber... These are companies that have a presence in the EU, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't work. Uh, it just mm-hmm. means nobody has pushed it hard enough, but they totally could, and they would very likely be able to win it. And that's something telling people not to worry about it is terrible advice. We we had um, uh, at Ruby by the Bay, uh, we had a, fellow from i want to say he was from russia he's from eastern european somewhere 
Um, but he, he was asking if we were GDPR compliant and uh, for diaper base. And, and, um, I mean, we're, we're not, <laughs> but, but we also only service people in the U S yeah. so you're only dealing with U S based entities purely. Yeah. So I, I, and it's such a limited audience too. So yeah. let me ask this question yeah. though. Mm-hmm. If I'm in France and I want to set up a mm-hmm. diaper bank, I could still download diaper base and run my own version of it. Couldn't I? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could, I mean, you could be in France and you could use our, our application in France and it would probably still work. I, I think like the, the addresses and things that we use are formatted for us addresses, but like if we had an international user, I'm actually kind of hoping like I rails has all this really cool internationalization stuff built into it, like where it just automatically translates stuff when you provide it with the, the content. Um, and I really want to use it, but we just don't have any reason to yet. <laughs> I mean, it's a. It'd be interesting to see that theory tested. Um, yeah. If somebody wanted to set up a, a diaper bank in another country using your software, now mm-hmm. you are you are processing the data of EU people, and you are now. Yeah. Then the, then it would apply. You are under the yeah. umbrella. So, uh, what what I would think there is, you either need to like build in a hard limitation to the U.S. into the tool. Well, we would we we would know. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you, yeah. you've got a finite and manageable number of for now yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> or build the tooling into it that allows you know proper yeah proper compliance and I, cause I don't think it would be hard in your case but yeah you know, i i don't know there might already be a gem for this um uh, but if there isn't i i bet there would be a lot of use for like a gdpr gem where if you give it like a name or a user record or something, it sort of like facilitates the scrubbing process. Right. That's kind of like what WordPress has added. Yeah, they've added that ability to. Uh, I forget. I don't. I haven't used it yet, so I don't know how the implementation itself works. But it's basically a, a way you can flag things you add to the database as being mm-hmm. uh, like GDPR tagged, so to speak. To because they have a oh, they have okay. a tool now in the back end where you can go in to delete people out of your system and to facilitate requests. Oh, that's cool. Um, so you you like you flag something as being this is GDPR right. material and then that way if you ever have to pull it, it's just you have all the hooks in place. Yeah. And you can ah, you can do cool. it in a way like if you get clever, for instance, if mm-hmm. there's user contributed data like posts or something, you know, yeah. you could pull off the the personally identifiable pieces without getting rid of like the like comments i think are uh, one of those spaces you don't necessarily want comments to be deleted because it would break the the flow you know of of that but you can remove all of the personal identifiable pieces to that still huge problems when it comes to what if i type my name into the comment right uh, because that is still subject to a gdpr right to be forgotten from a very technical standpoint oh by the way last addendum on that um i just looked and there is a gdpr rails gdpr underscore rails gem um that is specifically about gdpr compliance management for a rails application so your homework is to bring that back on the next episode (laughs) and tell us how to use it (laughs) there's also just the plain gdpr ruby gem um i i don't know i literally just looked these up i don't know if they're any good but those do exist so if you're I don't know if we have any European listeners, but if we do, and you're a Rails dev, there you go. 
the last point on why you should care in the U.S. is because it's coming to the U.S. next year. Because if you haven't heard of the California Consumer Privacy Act, it's mm-hmm. coming in 2020. And it's the California version of the GDPR. And <laughs> you may not do business in France or Germany, but I'll bet yeah. you probably have a good chance of doing business in California. I can't tell if the California version of this is going to be better or worse. Yeah, I I really don't. And for all the reading... I, w- I would... I would think worse, but, like, the GDPR seems like such a clusterfuck that maybe it's better. I don't know. For everything I've read about GDPR and, and how deep my nose has gotten into it with the work we've been doing, I don't know much about California's version. Uh, they they yeah. have, if you go to their website, they've got, like, a 10-point list of all the things that it's supposed to do, which, you know, it stopped me if these sound familiar, but right to know all data collected by a business on you. Right to say mm-hmm. no to the sale of your information information security, right to delete data that you have posted, right to not be discriminated against if you tell a company not to sell your personal information. Uh, interesting point about that, because this comes back to what like what you were saying with like the browser bits and pieces and everything. Yeah. This idea that if I say no to things, I should still be able to get a minimum amount of service from your application. Right. Like if I don't consent yeah. to the way you want to use my data – and that lack of consent is irrelevant to the action I'm asking to take. Yeah. I should be able to take that action. Um, and that's... Well, it, it, even if it's something where you have to set up a profile, like if they need a name, they don't really need your name unless your name is somehow actually necessary. You could give them Joe Schmo. If, if your forum needs your birthday... You could just give them the year of your birth. Or, or I mean, you just lie. Not at all. Let's try not at all. Or just, or just say yes. I'm over this age. Just attesting, I am this old. Uh, well, as part of that, it's funny you mentioned that. Number yeah. seven on the list is mandated opt-in before sale of children's information under the age of sixteen. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> so there's this whole list, and all of these will sound very familiar as far as that goes. So. If you think the U.S. is safe, and we didn't we just mention, what, two or three shows ago, I think one of the, the warmer topics that we started with was the deal going through Congress, that they have been given the green light to pursue legislation that would mimic what the GDPR is doing. Oh, right. Yeah. That's right. So while, I mean, that does, nothing has been written yet, the door was kicked wide open that said that, uh, I think it was the CBO or one of those, um, or one of the one of the watchdog organizations came back and said, "Yeah, cool, go for it." It's it's a good thing that there aren't any like really big companies in California that deal a lot with user data, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this gets into this idea as a developer, and we I run into it a lot. And there was something I was talking to somebody about uh, the other day that fell into this this idea that HTML and CSS is so easy, like. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's so easy to become a web developer, and it's like, yeah, okay, but being good at being a web developer is incredibly hard. We have we have Aaron tool analogy. Yeah, Aaron is a notes. tool, and that's the way we uh, <laughs> are going to describe this. No, I was I was thinking that it's like you know anyone can swing a hammer or saw a plank or like screw a screwdriver or whatever but it doesn't mean that you can you, build you screw house. screws with the screwdriver you don't screw the screwdriver we need to keep you away from tools that's what i'm doing wrong well you can use tools 
But it doesn't mean you can build a house with them. Yeah. And like HTML and CSS isn't hard to learn. I mean, like to a degree. I I don't know. The stuff we talked about earlier is like, whoa. You could even build a house, <laughs> but you can't guarantee you can get a wheelchair through the door. You can't be right. certain that your electrical won't start a house fire or that you won't die of carbon Actually, monoxide poisoning. Wait, we didn't put this in the show notes, but before the show, Michael and I were looking at weird things on the internet and we found... Was a, a garden house? What did they call it? Yeah, garden house that's for sale on Amazon. Yeah, we shared it in the random channel on our Slack channel, um, drunkenux.com slash Slack. <laughs> but job. you can for like five for five thousand bucks or seven thousand dollars, you can buy this little like hundred and forty square foot. Um, you described it as like a deck with a not a hut, but like a sunroom. Yeah, a sunroom. That's kind of what it looks like. Uh, but I, you know, it's it's just a, it's basically just like a chassis. It's an IKEA house. Put whatever you want. Yes, that's actually really it's good an IKEA house. Yeah. If, if IKEA made a small like guest house, like this would be it. And um, but that's uh, that's kind of like you know like a website that you know you might build with Wix, WordPress, <laughs> Squarespace, <laughs> Squarespace, yeah. It's huh. it, it it's it is that idea though that sure yeah okay if Joe Schmo down the street can go get their you know ten dollar a month uh, Webflow account or whatever and set up a website mm-hmm. but they don't really know what they've done and they certainly can't mm-hmm. do the hard stuff that's related to it um, where GDPR fits into this is these are the skills and we made a comment I don't remember which episode it was on but I I remember this conversation about like CSS animations. And Mm -hmm. this idea that, yeah, learning basic CSS is incredibly easy, quite frankly. Yeah. But when you sit down and start looking at, or, well, for instance, what we started the show off with. Yeah. Building a chat system with CSS. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me CSS is easy, please. I, you know, I know we talked about doing bomb CSS on the show before, but um, apparently my bomb CSS is like. I don't know, like maybe like World War One grenade, <laughs> <laughs> and this is like like tactical strike missiles. <laughs> knowing things like how to build privacy aware systems and how to make something GDPR compliant is what will set you apart as a developer. It's the thing that when you apply for that job, I've got a job application out right now. I think I've got in in my inbox a dozen different applications for at this point. And I'm mm-hmm. going to have to go through them and figure out who's going to get an interview, um, a first mm-hmm. interview, let alone a second. And the thing that is going to set people apart is if they can do the little things and show me that. Yeah. And if you can put in there, oh, yeah, I have experience or at least an understanding of privacy uh, concepts, that will set you yeah. apart from the people who are just like, heck, yeah, I built websites in high school. It's like, yeah, that's a good starting point. But if you want to be a professional, if you want to be, you know, in this industry, if you want to be a contractor, you know, yeah. if you want to build houses, you have to know how to deal with legal compliance and things like that. And it's boring and it's not interesting and it's hard and it's counterintuitive, but we still have to do it. A- yeah. An example here is like if you're building something with a database, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just good enough to know, well, I can throw a table in that. Yeah, okay, making a yeah. table on a database is easy. Do you know how to include, you know, salts and encryption for user data? Do you know how to do pseudonymization on data? Do you know how to do data warehousing and siloing? 
I got it, didn't I? I said it. You nailed I it. Nailed it. Yeah. It's the man, gentleman Jack has me talking like a gentleman. What can I say? <laughs> or wait, no, uh, gentleman Jack has has me uh, uh, talking proper like a lady. <laughs> is that the the joke? I don't know. Uh, the other side of this is not just building but fixing. I think we I mentioned this yeah. earlier that a lot of places you're going to get a job and you're going to walk into stuff that already exists. You're not going to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to build from scratch as much. You're going to be helping maintain or, or build on a system that has existed before you. I, I would liken the privacy stuff to like security knowledge. You know, like we, we don't have to be good enough with security that we can do red teaming or blue teaming, but you have to be aware. Yeah, You have to know what SQL injection is. You have to know like how to stop basic cross-site scripting, just the low-hanging fruit so that you're not an easy target. Right. So you had asked before, like, is this working? And I, I said mm. specifically, let's wait till the end of the show because that's where this comes <laughs> in. I feel like you're almost setting me up for these, and I'm not sure if you are. Uh, so Amazing. there were – and I, I don't know why this number varies because I feel like this is a number that should be known. But mm-hmm. there was a range that I was able to find. There were between forty and 60,000 data breaches reported last year to GDPR authorities. Oh, shit. Yeah. Talk about – if you were to guess – I should have asked you to guess, guess before I said that. Um, is it 13? It's uh, more than 13, actually. It is 40 to 60,000. Wow. Oh, wait, wait, is that, okay, wait, are these numbers, are they more because the threshold has been lowered, so more are showing up? Are they more because it's, a, it, like, there's just more compliance now? Or? Yes. Uh, the answer <laughs> is yes to everything. So, okay. one, prior to this, we, you know, as far as the EU goes, there wasn't like a place to report it really uh you okay. know when it, it to report a data breach some countries did have like germany was one that comes to mind that did have a mandated reporting for a data breach but it was yeah. totally ad hoc per per country and who knows so with the introduction of gdpr you had mandated reporting and a place to report it mm-hmm. too so obviously reports went up on top of that in in the same way what constituted a data pre- breach was normalized. You know, they went through and explained, hmm. like, for instance, if a database table leaked out with IP addresses in the U.S., that uh, would not be a data breach in the U.S. Because oh, I- IP addresses are not considered personally identifiable, except right. in weird court cases, which I still don't understand. <laughs> they still get used in court as personally identifiable sometimes, but it's not from a privacy standpoint considered personally identifiable. In the EU, it is. Okay. And that's been a fun question. Uh, go look up some things like uh, website access logs and GDPR compliance if you really want to have your brain hurt. Because <laughs> IP addresses are personally identifiable. So that's that number, 40 to 60,000, is a two to threefold increase in the number of data breaches that have been reported as a result. And that is generally viewed as a positive because it means people are getting notified that their stuff is getting out there. Yeah. Also, that's a huge, like, that that number is crazy is in my eyes. Like, that's a lot of data breaches. That's like, uh, what, 5,000 a month? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. I think they, they started at like 1,800 a month and it went up from there. So, yeah, talking about, like, understaffed departments, you know, yeah, dealing no with that level of, of volume. That's that's an average of 1,500 every day. 
a lot lot of a uh, lot of data breaches and it's basically just like data is just constantly leaking and out and you as a developer every few seconds you don't want to be the person getting blamed for one of those right i don't know man if you have if you have like 1500 of those having every day and and your site suddenly has one it's like I, I almost think it wouldn't be a big deal at that point. <laughs> but it should be. Damn it. <laughs> like, oh, it's Tuesday. <laughs> but uh, that's the thing. And like you were saying, you know, learning security, learning these things. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, we've had an episode on web security. Uh, what? It, it has happened. Like, th- because these concepts are important for you not to know inside and out, but sometimes you need to know what you don't know. Because one of the biggest yeah. problems is our th- this need to say yes. If somebody comes and says, hey, would you build this site for me? I need it to do X. You say yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we'll just make a form for that and store the data in, in a database. <laughs> and You can make it work. You can make it technically work. But that isn't good enough. And you need to know when that is not good enough and when to say, oh, yeah, we got to do that. But we need to make sure these things are taken care of. You know, it's going to cost, you know, a little extra because we have to build it this way. And it's yeah. it's no different than when you have to get your permits to build your house, you know, or, you know, to rip an electrical system out or to get lead paint yeah. remediation. Like, you have to go through steps. And, yes, it's bureaucracy. And, yes, it's getting in the way of stuff. But there are good reasons for that. You know, I saw I, earlier today I, I responded to a question on uh, Quora.com. And the question was, is there a way to, uh, the person was using a Rails app and they wanted to ask for the credit card number. They wanted to do something with it. I, I don't remember what it was, but they, they weren't wanting to persist it in the database. They just wanted it to like have it in the form and then go to the controller. But um, I was, I, my response was like, well, here's how you would do it. But you also want to make sure that you put it in your like filtered filtered fields thing in your uh, config so that it doesn't show up in your log files. <laughs> and then also maybe don't do this at all because yeah. like PCI compliance. <laughs> so where, where this kind of falls from a like front end standpoint in particular is caring about all of this from a UX standpoint. And that mm-hmm. comment we made earlier about like, like people don't trust companies but they also aren't smart enough to know how to handle all of the consent stuff that's thrown at them and i i mentioned this phrase privacy blindness we just start clicking buttons and it's like you you gave me a pop-up and i see the word consent i just want to read my damn article i hit yes or or no and half the time i don't know if a yes or no is what i need right understanding that a as a developer you need to avoid dark patterns trick people into giving consent you should never be tricking people into giving consent Mm -hmm. it should be clear and affirmative what they're doing but also making sure that you are building your consent tools and and privacy tools in a way that makes it easy for people to understand and know what they're doing you know last episode we talked about design systems and this would have been a great opportunity for the eu to create a design system around gdpr talk about it right talk about the the golden nugget out of this episode man i love that idea yeah so if hypothetically if california was going to do that ca privacy thing if they if they said okay if you have a website here are some tools this is some language you can use 
these are some icons you can use just to kind of standardize that compliance to kind of facilitate. This is what I was getting back to earlier, you know, communicating to the user. You want to do it as quickly as possible. It's just a compliance yeah. thing. And the funny part about that is like uh, when cookie compliance came up in the EU, mm-hmm. they tried that. And at least in that case, because I don't think they executed it well. And the yeah. the way it was done was bad. Like it was done in a way that was legally correct, but not <laughs> in a way that gave any kind of consideration to user experience. And then they kept changing the rule on top of like uh, what constituted, you know, acceptance of cookies and whatnot. But there, there's right. an article over at UX Design by Claire uh, Barrett called What Does GDPR Mean for UX? Go check that out. One of the things she huh. brings up there, and this is kind of an answer to one of your questions earlier about like the what you could do in browser Chrome. Right. One of the concepts right. she brings up is uh, just-in-time consent, which is mm-hmm. like if you're – let's take the app analogy you were giving. If you download yeah. an app and you go to use the camera, a lot of apps yeah. then pop up a thing that says, hey, we need permission to use the camera. That's right. just-in-time consent. If you install right. the app and then it says, hey, we need to use the camera, but you haven't even asked to use the camera yet, that's yeah. not that. I, I I have declined to install apps before because they were asking for permission to use things that I felt they didn't need to right. be using. And, and yeah. that, you know, that, again, gets into all this UX of privacy. Like, how do you convey to people that we need the thing we're asking for for X, Y, and Z? Because there are... Uh, cases like file system, let's say, and mobile device, I think, is a good example because there is at least a privacy model on them that's fairly standard that people are used to. Mm-hmm. Like, I need access to your files. And, like, at a very high level, especially when you're installing it, it's like, no, I don't want to give you access to my files. But <laughs> the reality is they need that because they, you know, they're going to allow you to attach, you know, a picture to something or whatever. Like, there is a reason for it. Now, asking with a just-in-time consent message gives people at least some context to realize, oh, I'm asking to do this. You're confirming with me that it's okay so I can Mm -hmm. connect those things. I can think of better ways to handle those, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, Just-in-time consent fixes part of that. I I like that because it puts it, it's um it puts the con- it sets the context right the the uh the gulf of evaluation that's a Donald Norman quote, right, right? Uh, the gulf of evaluation is narrowed because the user is being prompted very close in time to the thing that they have to do or the the relevant part and asking people to consent to like twelve things when they're signing up for an account or whatever. Is you'll see this phrase thrown around, it's consent fatigue or privacy fatigue. Like, yeah, you asking for a bunch of stuff all at once is what goes back to what I was saying. You're tricking people into giving you consent, is what you're trying to do. And I don't yeah. care about GDPR at that point. You are making a bad decision as a designer if that's what you're doing. You know, the easier way around that would be maybe don't ask for this information and then you don't have to ask for consent. Right. Yeah. The idea is like just in time consent solves the problem of ask for the thing that you need when you need it and nothing else. Yeah. If you look over at uh, prolific interactive, uh, Brad Arrigo has an article over there that also gets into this idea that there, there is no such thing as implied consent anymore either. 
uh, which is an important note. At least, again, in terms of GDPR, you can't right. just say click yes and you also agree to our terms of uh, service and to get marketing emails and all of that. That doesn't oh. work. You can't do that. That's illegal. That's uh, you have to oh, say good. I agree to get marketing emails and it has to be an affirmative checkbox kind of consent. Okay. And yeah, what you're just saying at the end of this, it all comes back to encouraging people to do the thing that I, I love any opportunity to say this. It's do less better, <laughs> do less better. Don't try to collect every piece of information on the planet about somebody. Don't try to get them to sign up for every single thing, whether or not that's what they're there to do. Let people do the minimum amount of stuff they want to do and give them an awesome way to do it. I, I think that the the thing I mentioned earlier, discipline, like we, we haven't had good data discipline coming this far because we haven't had to. And and things like privacy privacy laws are kind of enforcing better data discipline, both with how we manage and store the data, but also in considering whether like it's just, you know, not hoarding it anymore. Yeah. It's like we got to get all KonMari with our data. <laughs> does, does this data bring you joy? Yeah. Yes, it does. I get to know everything about their personal life. I was going through their Alexa recordings. Let me tell you about what I heard there. <laughs> I I think I I like do less better, and I think that you know if if you're concerned about this, I think step one is evaluate what you're already collecting, and what can you not collect anymore. Do you really need the name of the users? And every corporation doing business in the EU or with EU people is required to have a data protection officer. The data protection officer's role is to be an advocate for the users and their requirements and their privacy. But that doesn't mean that that responsibility begins and ends with them. Developers and designers and UX professionals and UI designers and QA people can all take part in that role. And should be mm-hmm. taking part in that role. I said, uh, I don't know if it was the last episode or the episode before, um, about this idea that one of the things our industry is missing is sort of an ethical code of conduct for our users. Last episode. Last episode. Um, yeah. I thought it felt awfully fresh. Because I mentioned the root strikers thing. Ah, yes. Um, yeah. But that's the thing that we're missing. And, and it's that argument of we have to do right by our users regardless of the business interests because at the end of the day doing right by your users is in your business interests yeah and i don't know i guess a better way to end actually i think uh the the joke about uh the data joy was probably in and (laughs) and alexa recording people having joyful things hey alexa turned on again hi alexa (laughs) hey later on tell alexa to tell alexa read me the lyrics to bohemian rhapsody oh. it's like it's like spoken word poetry it's great i don't know if i can do it do I it if I can do that, Dave. <laughs> uh folks we're gonna take a break uh, and stop for just a moment and we'll see you back here in about 60 seconds the drunken ux podcast is brought to you by our friends at new cloud NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. 
They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Hey everybody, thanks for sticking with us. We're going to round this out, get out of your hair. Thanks for joining us this week for episode number 36. Hey, if you're in Missouri by chance at the end of the month, I'm going to be at the Web Accessibility Summit in Springfield, Missouri. I'm doing a talk on transcripts. Ironic, I know, because we're behind. Don't worry, we're going to catch up on that. I swear, I know we've said that a lot too. But trust me, we are in fact working on that. Uh, but I will be talking there and we'll have a table set up and whatnot. And if uh, you stop by, say hi. I might have some some little stickers and swag to give away. Um, yes. Also, be sure to stay tuned. We have a killer episode coming up for episode 37. Oh, We're yeah. going to have Rachel Cherry on from WP Campus to talk with us about the Gutenberg Accessibility Audit. I cannot speak highly enough about Rachel, about WP Campus, about the work they've done for accessibility in Gutenberg. So be sure to stay tuned because that is not going to be a, a missable episode. So we're excited about that. I One thing I wanted to announce, um, the uh, RailsConf was uh, last week from when we're recording this. And uh, my uh, one of the, the core team people did a presentation involving Diaperbase. And the day after that, Diaperbase app hit number one on Ruby repositories on GitHub. That's awesome. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Yeah, I took a screenshot. I was so proud. <laughs> <laughs> my baby did it. <laughs> you, you know you've made it big, right? It's like making the front page of Imager. For real. For real. Hey, everybody, if you want to find us, jump on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX or Instagram slash Drunken UX podcast. We'd love to chat with you, hear what you think of the episodes or what you're enjoying. Um, you can chat with us on Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack, and that will get you to our Slack channel. Uh, connect with us. Say hi. Uh, I One yeah. thing I always get a kick out of is when I see somebody follow us on Twitter and then like yeah. they follow my personal account immediately after that. <laughs> that I that always makes me feel a little good, I think. So <laughs> everybody stay tuned. Join us in 2 weeks for the Gutenberg Accessibility Audit Review. Uh, otherwise, thanks for listening this week. Take care, build great things, and the only other advice I have left to give is one single thing. It's small, but it's big in its impact, and that's to keep do less better. Your what? Well, yeah, I do like to do less better. Um jive for life. <laughs> And keep your personas <laughs> close, but your users closer. <laughs> Bye-bye. Later.